0: We got into the matter of private prayer last week. We'll continue with that theme today. We've already read the verses that take in the Lord's Prayer. Let me read just the the actual ones that comprise the prayer. Once again in verse 9 After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I think sometimes we forget that what we know is the Lord's Prayer, the words I just read, is really a part of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, the whole series we've been bringing more than 20 messages so far. Jesus didn't give this as a separate topic. He didn't give it as an aside, although we often focus on it by itself. When Jesus got into this, what we know as the Lord's Prayer, He wasn't changing the subject The subject remains the same, and that is the hidden extraordinary righteousness of God that He demands to be distinguished from the external righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And no discussion of righteousness, practically speaking, would be complete without a section on private prayer. Last week we talked about the foregoing verses about prayer. I won't review them today. But let me just say, if prayer has not become your native breath as a Christian, if it's just a formality or a show or something you do on special occasions, you better check up to see if you've got a channel open with God. You know, everybody prays in a foxhole. Everybody prays when they think they're under nuclear attack, don't they? I remember going to school, and I won't tell you how long ago it was to uh, be, be betraying my age. But when I went to public school, I remember pe- people putting up signs, and they were pretty brave to do it. This wasn't all that long after the Supreme Court had ruled out prayer in public schools. But there'd be signs put up that said, in the event of nuclear attack, the ban against prayer is temporarily suspended. Everybody prays in a foxhole everybody prays when they think they're under nuclear attack but listen carefully to me to love your heavenly father so much that you want face-to-face communion with him every day even when you can't think of anything you need that's a pretty good indication that you possess a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the pharisees and that's what jesus is talking about as we get into the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, the disciples' prayer, I think it's important to realize that Jesus said very little to his disciples, as it's recorded in the Gospels anyway, about what we should pray for. Yes, he did tell us, as we emphasized during our missions conference and in preparation for it, he said, "Pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his white and harvest fields." He told his disciples to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He uh, said we should pray for the hastening of the kingdom, and a few other things, but really not very much, that he explicitly gave the what we should pray for. He left that to our sense of need. And the leading of the Holy Spirit, more than anything as far as the what to pray about is concerned, God was concerned about the how and the why, our motive when we pray. And so that's why we covered what we covered last week. Don't be hypocritical. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't do it to be seen of men or heard of men. Don't be ostentatious. Don't be repetitious. Don't use vain repetitions. Be real. Be genuine. When you go into that closet, be direct. Be conscious of your Father's presence. And if you leave that place of prayer and you haven't been made conscious of the Father's presence, you wasted your breath. And Jesus was concerned about these things. But now with this model prayer known as the Lord's Prayer, he gets into the what. He says more about the what than all the rest of the instruction in the Gospels combined about the what of prayer. Jesus gives us six distinct petitions. May I say the so-called Lord's Prayer is far more important than we might realize. It is the pattern for all Christian praying. I know many people, millions of people around the world, get up and recite it mindlessly today, just like they finger their rosaries or say their paternosters or uh, Ave Maria's. It it can become a, a mindless, mechanical exercise. But the fact that some abuse it that way shouldn't rob us of the preciousness of doing it the right way. All true prayer should follow this template. Our Lord expects us to pray this way. He didn't say, if you pray, do this. He said, when you pray. A prayerless person is a godless person. The late uh, theologian, writer that I've profited from, maybe you have too, J.I. Packer, said this, every prayer of ours should be a praying of the Lord's prayer in some shape or form. We never get beyond this prayer. Do you believe that? i might to tell you it's only been within the last year that I've come to really be convicted of that. And I do not go leave my desk in the morning until I've prayed the Lord's prayer consciously, intelligently. After this manner, pray ye. Not only is it the manner, the template, but it, the matter of prayer is covered here. It's comprehensive. It covers everything with an economy of words. Just like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, this prayer is meant for all Christians in all places at all times. It really anticipates Christ's later breakthrough teaching about prayer. The game changing teaching about what it means to pray in Jesus' name, something no Old Testament saint did, and praying in the Holy Spirit. All of that is foreshadowed here. We are most certainly praying in the will of God when we can recite these words back to God, not mechanically, again, I say, but sincerely and intelligently. Please don't write off, though we're independent Baptists and we don't like formality. Please don't write off praying the Lord's Prayer as if it's something liturgical and legalistic. No, it is inspired. It is sublime. The Lord's Prayer is the essence of all true prayer. The disciples' prayer, the model prayer. And what is the heart of all true prayer? Well, if I ever learned anything from the late Dr. John R. Rice, I learned what the answer to that question was. He would say over and over, prayer is asking. He wrote a book, Ask Prayer, Asking and Receiving. The heart of all true prayer is asking. There are a lot of things that are associated with prayer, but we have not truly prayed unless we have asked God for something. So what are the things we should ask Him for? Well, the Lord's Prayer gives us six petitions And don't be dismayed. I'm not going to cover all six today. I'll cover probably just the first one. But I hope it will be a blessing. I hope it especially means something to our mothers. Because the first thing Jesus taught us to say is our Father. You say, here you are talking about Father on Mother's Day. But listen, if anybody needs to get through to God, the Father, it's Mother's. And if anybody ever elevated and sanctified motherhood, it was the one who gave us this prayer, Jesus Christ. The first petition then is that God's name might be honored. God's name might be honored. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I've dealt with the fatherhood of God at other times, so you'll forgive me for not emphasizing that as much as this first petition. Hallowed be thy name, or may thy name be. Be hallowed. That's the petition. It's preeminently important. This matter of safeguarding the name of God. Did you know God is jealous of His name? Did you know the most God-centered person in the in the world is in the universe is God? But what a privilege to address God as Father. I won't spend much time here, but remember, pagans never prayed this way. They never called their God Father. No Old Testament Jew ever addressed God as my Father. Do you know how many times the word Father is used in the Old Testament even with reference to God? Fourteen times, only fourteen times in 39 books, and none of those times was it a term of address by a Jew. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus comes on the scene and He literally shocks the sensibilities of his Jewish compatriots when he unhesitatingly calls God Father. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, preached early in his ministry we believe, in Galilee, he authorizes his followers by extension us to do the same. So I challenge you to be conscious of the one with whom we have to do when we pray. We are praying to our Father. Yes, let's be personal. Let's be at home with our Father, but let's not be flippant. Jesus prayed to His Father, but He also called Him Holy Father. It is the Holy Spirit who causes us to cry out to God, Abba, Father. That tender, intimate term, equivalent to our daddy, daddy. Yes, He is our Father, but He is still holy. I cringe every time people talk with undue familiarity and contempt, flippancy about God. I may not score points by saying this, but He's not the man upstairs. He is the one before whom angels veil their faces and the one that the, before whom the heavens are not even clean. That's who you talk to or hope you're talking to when you pray. So this matter of his name being hallowed is a priority in both the Ten Commandments and here in the Lord's Prayer, both Old Testament and New Testament. Ten Commandments are given a couple of times in the Pentateuch, in the, Decal- the Decalogue, is it's known. Uh, if you can turn quickly to uh, Exodus chapter 20, I'll just read... Uh, A few verses that talk about the name, hallowing God's name, Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse number 3, and reading through verse 7, God gives the law through Moses and says, Thou shalt have no other gods, lowercase g, before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. Why? For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, that taketh his name in vain." More verses in the Ten Commandments are devoted to God's name being hallowed than any of the other commandments. The order of these first petitions in the Lord's Prayer is most significant. The ones that deal with God, His will, His kingdom. We cannot expect God's kingdom to spread, to be triumphant on earth unless God's name is revered by us. Stop and think about it for a moment. There's no blasphemy in heaven. It's not tolerated. Similarly, God's will is not done by people who do not regard his name as holy and show him reverence. So let's look at this as a petition. I said that already. God is not just telling us to acknowledge His name as holy, He is admonishing us to pray that His name and all it represents will be revered, will be honored, foremost in our own hearts, but then among other men. So in giving us this petition, Jesus is seeking to train us, I believe, for a blessed life of consecration and service in which we learn to forget ourselves in the sincere desire that only He may be glorified. And then when that happens, our prayer will be spiritual. It will be dynamic. It will be fulfilling. Because no one ever loses by what he sacrifices for the Father. I think this first petition is most important because, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, it is eternal. Think of the other petitions about Lord forgive us our debts. One day you won't have to pray that, amen? One day you won't have to ask for your daily bread. But you will ascribe glory to God forever. The first one lasts. There's a concern here for God's character. Hallowed be thy name. When we talk about somebody's name, we're talking about their reputation or their character. I know the two are not exactly the same, but when we say somebody has a good name, we're talking about their reputation among people. Would you turn to the true Lord's Prayer, which is found in John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 6. But in John chapter 17, and I've been doing this in my devotions lately, I know Brother Jason Spruill Uh, taught this for the electives what a holy of holies this chapter is. But look what Jesus testified in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer verse 4 to his father. He said in verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. Father I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He had glorified the father. He had honored the law of God by keeping it perfectly. He testified that he had. He had perfectly fulfilled the law. He had been obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He goes on to say in verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. In revealing to men the name of the Father, He had revealed to them the nature, the attributes of God. And that's why Jesus could tell Philip When Philip said, show us the Father and it sufficeth us, Jesus could say, he that hath seen me, Philip, hath seen the Father. If you see Jesus, you see the holiness of God. He's so holy that he cannot look upon iniquity. If you truly see Jesus, you'll see that he manifests the faithfulness of God. God is so faithful that he still fulfilled the promise which cost him his only begotten's it's gotten son's life. When he realized the cost, he didn't renege. He still went through with it. I was reading a book this week, and a statement just leaped off the page at me, and it said this. It only cost God a word to create the worlds, but it cost him everything to redeem one sinner. Wow. He demonstrated, Jesus did, the love of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He manifested the Father's almighty power, put forth for our salvation in First Corinthians one twenty four, We read that Christ has made unto us the righteousness, the redemption, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And so we all these things and many other similar truths should just flood our minds as we pray that first petition, hallowed be thy name. Let's learn the habit of pleading the honor and pleading for the vindication of God's holy name when we pray. Even if our own name in the process is trampled in the dust, as I said about the triumphal entry of Jesus, as the disciples cast their clothes for Jesus to Ride over on the donkey, a symbol of their glory being trampled in the dust. That ought to be our attitude. Ride on King Jesus, as the spiritual goes on to say, no man can hinder me. Hallowed be thy name. Thirdly, it implies, I believe, a passion for God's proclamation. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, I'm talking about spreading the fame of God. Remember what Jesus said to that fallen woman at the well of Samaria at high noon that day when He stopped and witnessed to her? He said, the Father is seeking worshipers. Do you think He's still seeking worshipers? I think He is. Worshipers. When we think of the Jewish nation in the Old Testament, I think we often think of the fact, and this is true, that they were ultra-nationalistic. They were very very patriotic for the most part. They isolated themselves from the rest of the heathen world. The rest of the heathens were the goyim, the dogs. They were separate from the world except when they imbibed the idolatry and the wickedness of the surrounding nations and God had to punish them. But they had this holier than thou attitude, and we remember Jonah, the prophet, and how reluctant he was to go to that wicked Gentile capital of the world, Nineveh, and preach God's forgiveness and mercy to that great city. They were the sworn enemies of Israel. Jonah didn't want to go, he ran the other direction. God had to work him over, he had to be swallowed by the whale. But then we are astonished to come across other sentiments in the Old Testament on the part of these ultra-nationalistic patriotic Jews like the one David expressed in Psalm 34 verse 3 and there are many others like it where he said, oh magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David wanted everybody to join in magnifying the Lord, The one true God of Israel. In Psalm 67, the first two verses, we read a similar expression. God, be merciful to us, to Israel, and bless us, and cause his face to shine upon us. Why? Here it is. Here's the reason given. That thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health, maybe your version says, thy salvation among all nations. That's amazing. The king of Israel, David... The man after God's own heart, the preeminent Israelite of his day, wanting other nations to know the God of Israel and see His glory and experience His salvation, yeah, that's always been God's heart. That's what God wants. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died. That's what Jesus wants us to pray for—a passion for His fame, the proclamation of His name. May I remind you again, as I did right before our missions conference a few months ago, that this is the greatest motive for missions. This is the greatest motive for sending out the gospel. And praise God for the new missionaries we have been able to take on. And some of you have gotten to know them very well and are praying for them and, and being a part of their of maintaining them on the field. But as important as it is to get their burden, and they lined up here on the stage and told us night after night their needs, and then individually represented their fields, and we got compassionate for the people to whom they were going. We felt sincere pity for the ignorance, for the error, for the awful plight and doom of these people if they did not repent and trust Christ. Yes, that should consume us, but let me tell you there's something even greater than a compassion for the lost. And that is a passion for the glory of God. A passion for the fame of God and Christ. As you've heard me say many, many times, He is worthy to be known and proclaimed for who He is. If nobody ever got saved, He's still worthy to be known and proclaimed for who He is. And I think we need to remember that when we pray that First petition: Hallowed be Thy name, Lord. May Thy name be hallowed. May Thy name be revered, honored, esteemed above every name, adored, much set by by the world. And again, when we see people falling down to false idols, oh, they don't may not fall down to literal idols of stone and metal and wood, but they're worshiping their ancestors. They're worshiping false gods. And something deep inside us ought to cry out, that's not fair, that's not right. There's only one who deserves that veneration. And that's my father. Let me tell you what. If that passion consumes you, that's what will keep the lonely missionary at the post of duty through thick and thin, in season and out of season, faithful to proclaim, proclaim the gospel because God has called him to vindicate his honor, his name, his fame. Well, I had to get to scratch that itch because the missionary in me just leaps out every once in a while, okay? Amen. But the rest of the time I'd like to talk about the practical implications for this first petition that God's name might be honored. How can we hallow the name of our Heavenly Father? How can we give him Honor. How can we venerate His name? I think there are four ways that are explicitly revealed in the Scriptures, not necessarily right here in the passage that we, in which we find the Lord's Prayer. But it's, I'm not straining to find these things, I think you'll agree. How can we do that? How can we hallow the name of our Heavenly Father? Number one, please put this down if you don't have a way of doing it later off of the screens. By cultivating a lofty view of God. By cultivating a lofty view of God. I'm convinced that most of us. Have a. Small God. An inadequate God. We need to have the vision of God. That Isaiah the young prophet had. As it's recorded in chapter 6. You don't need to turn there. I'll just kind of summarize it. But I think you remember. The details had a great message. Preached on this by our evangelist. Aaron Coffey not this long ago, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah the young prophet said, I saw also the Lord. He saw Jesus, by the way, if you examine that in John chapter 12. He said, I saw the Lord, and what was the very next phrase? Here it is, high and lifted up. And his train, his robe filled the temple. That's how awe-inspiring the sight was. And, of course, the the seraphim said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And then in verse 5, you see that the first thing he sees is his own sin. And he cries out, woe is me, for I am undone. The word undone means ruined. When's the last time you got in the presence of God and felt ruined? totally undone. Most people don't think they've even interacted with God unless they're just having a feeling good and jiving. I think most of us would know God if He bit us. We have such an unscriptural view. He's the one who's high and lifted up and before Him We fall prostrate and our mouths are stopped. Unless we cry out something like Isaiah, woe is me for I'm ruined. Like Peter did when Jesus showed his power in fishing. He said, woe is me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And then we'll see the sin around us the very next thing Isaiah said is, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He lamented the sin of those around him. You know what's wrong with the church in America? We envy the world around us. I was reading what Ezekiel said in one of the earlier chapters of his book, I've been reading through the book of Ezekiel, and God told Ezekiel to make, to make a mark over the, on those who, the men who sigh and cry for all the abominations done in the midst of our country. At least that's the application for us. When was the last time you sighed and wept over the sins, the abominable sins of those around you? I'm not talking about cursing the darkness. I'm talking about paroxysms of grief. The late A.W. Tozer wrote these words, and some of you remember this or you've heard it before. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Could I say it, add the two words, and defining the most important and defining thing about us? He went on to say, the history of mankind will probably show that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her conception of God. So again, I say, beloved, our problem is our God is too small. We think that He is altogether such as we are. We fabricate a God to our own liking. We bring Him down to our level." We do not love and know the one true God and therefore it cannot be said of us what Daniel said in chapter 11 verse 32 of his prophecy but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And So I challenge you today to study and know and pray to the God who is there to borrow the title of a great book by the late Francis A. Schaeffer The God Who Is There the real God, the true God. Secondly, if we want to honor and revere the name of God, we need to practice His holy presence. You know, you can't just suddenly switch gears and reflect on God every now and then, whenever you choose to, breaking away from something else. No, you're going to have to do what David did in Psalm 16 verse 8, I'm have you turn to several passages here in closing. I hope you'll look at them with me. Psalm 16, verse number 8. This is the psalm quoted in this Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Wonderful truth. It's a messianic psalm. And notice what David says in verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. And only when we can say that can we go on to say, as he says, and as he closes the, the psalm in verse 11 Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That's the second time he talks about the right hand. Question Who's at the right hand of God? Jesus. That's where all the pleasures are, wrapped up in him. And the spirit that indwells us, the spirit that was sent on the day of Pentecost when Jesus was enthroned on high, the spirit that indwells us is the spirit of the glorified, exalted Christ. Let's never forget that. And in the power of that Spirit, we can do the greater works that Jesus talked about in John 14, verse 12. When I was growing up, and you had this in your home too, my mother chose and found and mounted a plaque. I don't care where we moved to, it was always in a visible place, and usually in the kitchen or the dining room. You've heard of it. Jesus Christ is the Lord of this house. The unseen guest at every meal. The silent listener to every conversation. Wow, that'll put the fear of God in you to remember that. Would to God that were true in every home. How we need to cultivate a sense of his presence. Oh, that he would be real to us. As we practice his holy presence. But we can't see him. We can't hear him audibly. Can he still be real? Oh, yes. The same year that I lost my first wife, Chloe, 2004, I, I lost my sister-in-law, my twin brother's wife. I lost a little niece, Betsy. She was only 14. Didn't know that much about her. But I came to really respect and appreciate her. She had a congenital heart problem and they had to do surgery. They couldn't wait any longer and she didn't make it through the surgery. But Betsy loved Jesus and she loved to tell the people about him. She was just unaffected. She would just blurt out something about Jesus. She was an only child. She didn't have any other natural siblings. So she had an imaginary friend. I talked with her dad about this. It wasn't a stuffed animal. It wasn't a doll. But everywhere she went, she took this friend. He was real to her. If she went to a restaurant, there had to be an extra chair. If there were gifts under the Christmas tree, there had to be a gift for this friend. She never grew out of that. She never saw him. But he was real. Whom having not seen, Peter said, ye love. Do we love him? Would to God that we never went anywhere without taking Jesus with us. Take the name of Jesus with you child of sorrow and of woe, the omnipresent and all-seeing Lord. If you are going to revere the name of God, if you want others to, you're going to have to render thirdly spiritual worship. I won't have you turn there for the sake of time. But in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3, and you think of Leviticus, I hope you automatically associate that book with worship. And in chapter 10, let me just give you the context Very quickly, in commenting on the sin of Nadab and Abihu, the wicked sons of Aaron, the high priest, who offered strange fire before the Lord, and God cremated them right on the spot. Commenting on that, we read these words, Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is that that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. Beloved, do you realize that it is in the purity of, it is the purity of worship that God is looking for? It's not the pomp and the ceremony. If we are true believers, we will be able to identify with the sentiments that Peter relates in his epistle. I want you to see this. I do want you to turn to this passage, First Peter chapter two, verses five and nine. Would you turn there quickly? First Peter chapter two, verses five and nine. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting verses that are related to Israel, but these are true of the church. 1 Peter 2, verse 5. Ye also as livelier living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now would you look on down at verse 9 the more familiar words quoted from the Old Testament. But ye, that's y'all, you plural, that's the church, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, literally a people for God's possession. Why? Here it is, that ye should show forth the praises, the excellencies, the aritas of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, Beloved, we are children of the light because we're children of the Father. And could I say to all of us present this morning, you are either a child of darkness or you're a child of the light. There's no in between. Oh, I know what some people think automatically when you say that. (laughs) Ah, preacher, I grew up in America. We're, We're an enlightened country. We're progressive. I didn't grow up in a jungle a member of some illiterate tribe. I would answer that by saying every baby, I don't care where he or she is born, is born in the dark. It may be warm in the womb, but it's dark. And once the delivery takes place and the matter over the eyes is wiped away, whether it's by a midwife or a doctor, some people deliver their own babies. I don't recommend that, but once that takes place, the newborn sees for the first time. Every baby is born in the dark. That's an appropriate parable spiritually. What takes place when one is born again into God's family, born from above. And until then, you can't worship God. You can't please God. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. You are in the realm of darkness as far as your natural state is concerned. You know how the Bible describes you? I don't care how brilliant you are. I don't care what your IQ is, how well you scored on the ACT or the SAT. Until you are born again, born from above, until you see the kingdom of God, because of the Holy Spirit, you are blind. The God of this world, that's not Jesus, That Satan, according to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, has blinded your mind so that you cannot see the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the exact representation, the image of God to sinful men. You are blind as a bat. You are blind as Nicodemus, who though he was a brilliant man and the ranking ruler of the Jews, he came to Jesus and he asked one of the dumbest questions ever asked in the history of mankind. When Jesus said, you must be born again, Jesus said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Duh. Religious people don't get it. Only spiritually enlightened people get it. The good news is Jesus is the light of the world. He's the light of the world physically. He was the one who spoke light into existence. In the beginning, he's the light of the world spiritually. According to Psalm 36, verse 9, it is only in his light that you and I can even see light. You've heard me say it before, man thinks he's something. Something he thinks that he's really been illuminated, but he's really in a deep pit. And he turns on his artificial flashlight and he sees a few bugs crawling around the walls of that pit and he marks it down as progress. He's still in the pit and he can't get out unless the Spirit of God illuminates him. And how does he do that? He does it through his word and he does it through his Holy Spirit. He turns on the light. Then usually he turns up the heat with conviction. And he shows that you that you are a sinner who cannot deliver yourself from sin and its awful penalty, which is hell. And the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to you as the one who paid the penalty on the cross for your sin 2,000 years ago. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. It is finished, he cried from the cross. Sin is paid for. Redemption is complete. If you had been the only sinner who ever inhabited and defiled God's perfect earth, Jesus would still have come to die just for you. So now the $64,000 question is, what are you going to do about that? The only acceptable answer, the only way to become a righteous person, as Jesus is talking about that here in in, in Matthew chapter 6, the only way to become a righteous person in God's sight, the only way to become a true worshiper, like Jesus described to the woman of Samaria, what the one God is seeking, is to receive by faith the same Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. And then you can say with the psalmist, the Lord is my light, He's illuminated me, and He is my salvation. one more thing if you really set out to revere the name of God it will have the implication in your life of obeying God implicitly I know we don't call ourselves holiness people we call ourselves Baptists but I hope you're not afraid of that word holiness because it says in Hebrews that without holiness no man shall see the Lord If you're not living a holy life right now, you are dishonoring God's hallowed name. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Remember how Samuel, the prophet of God, rebuked a compromising sinful king by the name of Saul when he said, To obey is better than sacrifice. Saul had disobeyed and spared the Amalekites, and he was offering a sacrifice, trying to atone for that, trying to compensate for that. Could I just say, don't try to atone for your own sin by doing something to appease God. God doesn't weigh your good works against your bad works, God demands blood. He demands the blood of Jesus for forgiveness. He demands righteousness, perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ if you're going to have any standing with Him whatsoever. Otherwise, you'll be ejected from court. You'll be consigned forever to the lake of fire. Actually, you're under that sentence already. He that believeth not is condemned already. Beloved, when you and I approach God in prayer, our first concern should be, I don't care what the burdens on your heart are. I don't care what the needs of others dear to you are, as worthy as it is to be, intercede for them. But let the first thought on your heart be when you approach God in prayer. I am meeting with my Father. I must honor Him. May His name be hallowed in my mind and in the minds of others. And then that frame of mind will create a filter through which all your subsequent petitions can pass acceptably, shall we pray. Father, please help us to learn before anything else about prayer, what it means to hallow your name. When others trample your name in the dust, help us to honor it. When others misrepresent you and paint you to be some kind of senile compromising granddaddy in the heavens, help us to hold true your name, to honor it, to revere it. Forgive us for failing in that. Forgive us for bringing you down to our level. Help us to be able to pray honestly and sincerely, hallowed be thy name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.